Hi, I'm Jacques Barrett, comedian, actress, and idiot. I have a podcast of my own. It's called Quite the Pickle. Each week, myself and fellow comedian Emma Zamet think up a heinous situation, and then we interview a professional who gives us tricks, tips, and pointers on how to survive the pickle. At the end of each episode, we perform stand-up that we've written about what we learnt in the interview. It's a lot of fun. <laughs> That's Quite the Pickle, available on iTunes and Spotify. We hope you enjoy it. Yeah. Ahoy, welcome back to the Andy Social Podcast, another week of podcasting. And before we kick into this episode, which by the way, if you love snakes, strap yourselves in, get ready for this one. It's a good one. It's a cracker. But before we kick into it, you know, I'm going to say, that's right. Patreon, patreon.com slash Andy Dealing. It's the best way to support this podcast. It starts at a buck a month, it's dirt cheap, and any additional tier gets you access to the exclusive Patreon podcast episode that comes out every Tuesday morning, 6am, straight into your ear holes. A little bit of fun to... uh to, to brighten your day, brighten your week. So go and check it all out. It's the reason why Andy Social has ramped up to two episodes per year. It's because of the Patreon community, which I absolutely, absolutely love. It's been a, a game changer for Andy Social, and I just love the support that comes from Patreon. So consider it. Back your boy, Andy. Patreon.com slash Andy Down. Episode 261 of the Andy Social Podcast is here. And this episode is with Stuart McKenzie. Now, Stuart is a snake catcher, a snake catcher, a snake catcher, a first for Andy Social, just in case you didn't get that, a first. Uh, I'm, I'm absolutely pumped. I've never had a snake catcher on the podcast. And Stu is the owner of Sunshine Coast Snake Catchers 24-7, an amazing business. I mean, you know, literally, it is what they advertise. They, they catch snakes. And no matter where you guys are in the world, I encourage you to follow this business on Facebook and Instagram in particular, because Stu and co are absolute kings when it comes to social media. They are putting videos up on a daily basis, especially on the uh, stories of them out and about in the field, collecting snakes from all sorts of weird and wonderful places. It is incredible. It's addictive. I've just spent uh, yeah a hell of a long time just engrossed in these videos, and you guys have got to check this out. So, of course, Stu and I talk about snakes and a whole bunch of stuff in this episode. It's absolutely amazing. Go to Sunshine Coast Snake Catchers 24-7.com.au. Instagram, just search for Sunshine Coast Snake Catchers. The same with Facebook. I'll have all the links in the show notes over at andysocial.net and andydaling.net. But enough yapping from me. Please enjoy this great chat with Stuart McKenzie. Yeah, so I I started um, work at Australia Zoo. Oh, I started actually doing a, um, a Bachelor of Science in Zoology and Marine Biology about 10 years ago. I think I finished and graduated from uni and passed all that and then, um, yeah, got a job at the zoo for six and a half years. So I was working with all the venomous snakes and feeding all the crocs and um, doing all that dangerous sort of work. And I guess during my first couple of years at the zoo, uh, a couple of the guys there – they they were snake catchers, like just on the side, like they they did you know one one or two calls a month kind of thing on their weekend and had their permit to do it and just didn't really take it too seriously, just a bit of fun on the side. And I thought, you know what, I'll um I'll give that a go. And I, I got my permit and you know started a little Facebook page, and um and yeah, basically went from from that. I end up uh, getting a bit more meet more work and working with a few other snake catchers in the area who were around at the time and um, and sort of kept building it up over the next sort of two or three years to the point where 
um, I dropped back at the zoo, so I only worked two or three days at the zoo and then two or three days um, or whatever the rest was uh, of the week uh, snake catching. And um, it, was, it, was, it was a good time. Like, it was a bit of best of both worlds. But, you know, I was getting to the point where I was just burning out because I was literally working seven days a week, um, 24-7 with the snake stuff. So, you know, I didn't have a big team. It was just me back then. So if I was in – you know, Marichidor or Budrum, and I got a call 45 minutes away down in Caboolture, I'd go to it. And then on the way home, if I got a call up in Noosa, I'd drive all the way to the northern parts of the sunny coast oh, yeah. and go to that. So I was just doing so many Ks and just driving to ridiculous places at 2 o'clock in the morning, whereas now I just wake up, pass on the job and go back to sleep. So, um, <laughs> But, um, yeah, so I kind of kept going from there. And <clears throat> um the guy I worked for, Richie Gilbert, we sort of um, just sort of did our separate things for a couple of years and, and I sort of built up my business and, and his business is quite big and as well and we kind of worked together for a little bit for a time there but then I ended up um, buying his business and combining them both together in the end. So it kind of went full circle and, and that's when I um, made the choice to obviously leave the zoo a couple of years ago and, and just follow this full time and now it's just mental so it's um i've probably got uh, three or four other guys who help me on a consistent basis so basically nearly full-time work for most of the year um and then obviously i do it full-time i've got a media manager who helps me out with all the social media stuff and um also catches a few snakes as well and yeah man it's just it's just crazy we've got a few other things in the in the works this year, hopefully, one of them being obviously the tours and a, and a few other little things happening. But um, yeah, it's just it's been a crazy sort of four or five years. Just looking back on you know where I was four or five years ago, I just wouldn't wouldn't think I'd be where I am now. I mean, just working at Australia Zoo, there's so many people who just go, "Oh man, that sounds like the dream job to have." What was the appeal to sort of start to move away from that and do your own thing? Um, I think, you know, like I always wanted to be my own boss, I think. And, you know, I love working at the zoo. I had some of my fondest memories at the zoo and, you know, being open to that huge range of reptiles, especially that they've got there. You know, in the morning I'd be working with huge Galapagos tortoises. Then I'd be feeding crocs in front of 3,000 people doing shows. And then I'd be wrangling venomous snakes in the afternoon. Like it was just insane, like the, the animals we got to work with and, but um, I guess, you know, I, I feel like zookeeping for most people has not necessarily a bit of a time limit on it, but also I think once you get to that six or seven-year mark, it's kind of like you, you've nearly achieved everything you can in terms of getting signed off for all the animals and, and working with them all, and I guess you're looking for, for extra challenges. And, and for me, I've always been, I guess, highly driven, and I, I guess I saw opportunities outside outside of that to go – um, pursue with my own business and um, and yeah there was always I guess bigger bigger picture stuff with um, pursuing it full time the business had a vision of where it was going to go and and that's all starting to um, to sort of come through slowly which is which is good but yeah I think it was just um, I, I didn't lose the passion for the animals or anything I think it was just time for something different I think it was just wanted to do my be my own boss there was an opportunity not many people I guess have that opportunity um, to be their own boss. So I, I took it. So Yeah, that's a bit of a dream itself. Oh, that's it. Like, and, and don't get me wrong, like, you know, it, it comes with its positives and negatives. Um, I still, when I was getting it sorted, found myself working seven days a week. Um, 
which, you know, to my, my wife hated that, but um, I've been able to um, change that over the past sort of 12 months and, and have really reliable snake catchers who, who've helped me out for years sort of, you know, take the phone. And, um, you know, even when I'm talking to you now, I've just quickly sent one of them a message saying, hey, can I, you know, give you the phone for an hour, tra- you know, transfer it to you that way I'm not disturbed. So that's really good that I've got that sort of luxury now that if I want to go out for dinner. You know, or just little things like that. I can just transfer the phone and not be bothered. Because trust me, when you uh, when you want to do something, the phone rings. It's um, it's actually insane. Uh, <laughs> over the years, you know, if I ever find myself just twiddling my thumbs at home, I'm like, right, I'm gonna go do some housework, or I'm gonna go do this, and as soon as I go to get do something and be busy, the phone rings. So, um, and trust me, when you when you're trying to go out for dinner and the phone rings five times while you're sitting at you know, trying to eat a meal at a restaurant, it's uh, it's pretty frustrating. So, um, yeah, it's good that you know I've got reliable people now, and and they're sort of willing to help out all the time, which is which is great. So it'd be interesting to know. I mean, obviously, there's the OG story of the business itself, but I mean, for you growing up, I mean, did you have experience handling reptiles as a kid? Did you have family members that were involved in that sort of stuff? Um, not really family members, but. It was, uh, you know, it was a strange. I had my first two pets were actually two shingleback lizards, and um, I've actually still got one, which is the crazy thing. And I reckon it's about twenty five years old. So, um, yeah. So my first two pets were lizards, which is a bit strange, I guess. Usually, people, you know, kids have cats and dogs or something like that. But um, I guess like, snakes was never, a, I guess, a fascination. I was always fascinated by lizards, um, weirdly. So you know, we I was lucky enough that my parents took my brother and I you know, tripping around Australia um, in a camper trailer, you know, basically from the time that probably were kindergarten, sort of age five or six, all the way through. I think the last trip I did with them was um, maybe when I was 18. Um, so basically went everywhere. And, you know, the whole time we're camping, we're obviously looking for reptiles and chasing lizards and all sorts of stuff. It was never snakes, though. I think snakes came um, when I went to the zoo and, you know, you basically start working with them day one in the reptile department. And um, yeah, kind of, kind of went from there. And I, I've generally been a fast learner, and with that sort of stuff. And yeah, I really enjoyed it, enjoyed the challenge because it is, you know, it can be challenging working with different species of snake. And and um, yeah, I think that's where it all sort of started the whole snake thing. But you've always been interested in reptiles. Do you think that having the fascination with lizards and um, just being sort of surrounded by that sort of helped you bridge the gap with? snakes because you know i think stereotypically when people talk about some of their biggest fears it's things like snakes and spiders and 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 the likes which sort of turn people off and and it's probably what you see all the time every day out in out in the yep. field do you think that sort of helped you sort of bridge that gap when you started working at the zoo to sort of go this is not a fear or anything that i need to I worry think, about yeah i think so like i think the fact that I think people even have, you know, fears of, well, not fears necessarily, but, you know, when they see a lizard, they don't want to just go grab it, you know what I mean, and and handle it. But I guess I always had that um, inquisitiveness when it comes to to lizards. And, um, and yeah, I think that did help. Like, you know, I, fe- I felt reasonably comfortable handling snakes when I first started at the zoo. So I think, um, you know, definitely think it helped bridge the gap and, I guess had that, you know, early confidence when it came to snakes and sort of got the hang of it maybe a bit quicker than someone who hadn't really had, an ex- you know, any experience with reptiles in their past. Was there, was there certain things that you had assumptions of when it came to snakes that 
were quickly sort of dispelled when you started working with them and with, with people that were experienced handling snakes? Were there certain things, behaviours and things you just had no awareness of when it comes to I th- snake Yeah, life? I think so. Like, I think you always get this, you know, growing up, especially with, you know, my parents being boomers and, you know, that sort of generation where a lot of them are just like, oh, you know, any snake's a good snake. You know, a good snake's a dead snake, sorry. Yeah, yeah. Um, and, you know, I still remember my first ever experience with a snake was my dad killing a brown snake like 25 years ago in our backyard. Um, so, and, you know, he obviously hasn't done it since then, but that was like a, a memory which I'll sort of never forget. But I just thought that was normal back mm. then. You know what I mean? Um, and I thought, oh, snake, you know what I mean? That's normal. Um, but... But, yeah, obviously learning to work with them and I guess learning their behaviours and, and, and realising that these things are terrified of us, you know what I mean? They're not out to get us at all. Um, you know, I've seen even the most defensive snakes, you know, the, the eastern brown snake, I've seen them terrified, you know what I mean? Like they are genuinely terrified of humans. They don't want anything to do with us. But the only time they get angry um, and I don't like to use the word aggressive. It's it's more defensive. Mm. Uh, when they get defensive, is only because people are bothering them. They're never going to you know go out of their way. So I guess just opening my eyes to that sort of thing, and and I guess understanding them a, a little bit more. And and I remember when I first started learning about snakes, someone told me that you got to think about life from a snake's eyes. You know, they are on the ground and basically looking up at everything. So everything to them is huge. Mm. Everything to them is big and scary. Um, so yeah, I guess you just learn to sort of respect them and, and, um, yeah, learn their behaviors slowly and, and now, um, yeah, completely understand, I guess, and look back, you know, to all those times where maybe even as a kid, I was probably even a little bit nervous around snakes, but, you know, it probably wasn't necessary. So, yeah, I grew up in Queensland and I was all over the shop by, my parents live in Redcliffe, and yep. I um I lived out in Cunnamulla. I lived in Emerald and Rockhampton um, as a kid, and so snakes were sort of this thing, very similar to what you said. Like I think, you know, my folks sort of sim- had a similar sort of outlook on on what you know the snake, the role of a snake is, and and its purpose or its value, and and I think the community sort of had a very similar sort of outlook. So it was, you know, I think just any thoughts around snakes were were surrounded with fear. And you would just, you know, there was nothing. There was nothing appealing about a snake whatsoever. So every time it was no, spoken about, was, it, yeah. was, was some sort of tragedy that's occurred, or or some sort of you know surprise that you know it's been discovered somewhere that it shouldn't be, and it's always been a negative sort of storyline that's been attached to any sort of snake, and especially up there where you, you talk about. Well, I mean, this is this is something we sort of wear as a badge of pride with being Australian. We talk about, you know, we, we have like whatever it is, like eight out of the top 10 deadliest snakes or whatever yeah. it might be. And so yeah. that's that was life for me. I mean, it was always about snakes are extremely dangerous. Um, stay away from them. And if you do find, you know, come across them, um, you know, look out. You're going to be in trouble and, you know, it might be best to, to do what uh, what your father did many years ago. Well, that's it. It's just like, you know, people were terrified, you know, and I guess knowledge is power and, and people just didn't understand them. And, and there's still people out there who don't understand them. I still get people saying ridiculous things on my, on my social media posts and, you know, you try and tell them otherwise, but they're just stuck in their ways. But, 
yeah, I think it's the same with spiders. I think it's just, yeah, like the the way the animal looks, you know, the fact that snakes don't have any legs, it creeps people out. Um, and, you know, spiders obviously so fast, they're creepy crawly, you know, that sort of thing. But even spiders, like I used to be, I have a bit of a fear of spiders. I didn't want one on me, that's for sure. But, you know, now there's a little spider inside. I just got to put my hand, even if it's a huntsman or a wolf spider, I just put my hand out crawl straight into my hand and take it outside like i guess it's 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 one of those things hey where it's like uh, just understanding the animal and over time even when i worked at the zoo working with the different animals just we still used to do experiences where people would come in and they they'd be terrified of these animals but it's just because they don't understand them you know what i mean like even crocodiles like don't get me wrong crocodiles are extremely aggressive and if they had their chance they would try and eat you 100%, especially the ones like that we feed at the zoo because they've been there forever and, you know, they occasionally try and do little things to um, and try and trick you. But, you know, even even when I was working with crocodiles, uh, you know, you, you get to know them and, you know, you still have that really healthy respect for them. Um, but you don't necessarily, wouldn't say fear them as such, like there's always a slight bit of nervousness when you when you hop in an enclosure with a crocodile, but it's it's a calculated sort of fear or nervousness, I guess, because you know without it, like you're just going to turn into a cowboy and, and get bitten. Mm. Um, so you do need that that element. Um, but yeah, I guess as you learn to you know to know more about the behaviours of these these animals, you um yeah you feel a bit more comfortable around them and and, and that sort of thing. So. Oh man, I, I'm just I'm just thinking about what you said before about just uh, letting the huntsman sort of walk onto your hand and go. <laughs> <laughs> I think most people go, oh fuck that. I mean, there's always that always that joke of you know the you know you see a meme on the, on the internet or something like that, and there's a picture of a of a huntsman or a spider, and it's just like suddenly the next picture is like the the entire house is on fire. It's just like I'd rather yeah, burn, yeah. burn the house down than have to deal with that spider. It's just, but it's funny. I mean, I think you know it, it's in. It's in our culture. It's in movies. It's in books. It's it's always portrayed as a as a as a negative thing. As a as a these are things to be feared, you know. And and obviously, as you're sort of more immersed with them and you, you're dealing with them on a day to day basis, obviously it's a completely different story. You have got a different relationship with them. Um, and I think one one of the things I, was, and I might jump to it. I'll jump all over the place actually. But um, one of the fascinations I have, well, I've found with, with what you do is just the amount of social media stuff that you do and the videos that you put up, because even me skimming through and watching these videos, which get a lot of hype, I'm starting to see a different side to these snakes. There's like yeah, you know, there's personality like, to them and I'm, I'm actually warming to these snakes and especially the way that you're, comment, you're giving commentary to what you're doing as well. And it, um, I don't know, I, I, I'm starting to feel for these snakes a little bit. Well, that's it. Like I think... Um you know, you've got to, there's ways you've got to think about it. Like, I, and, you know, different posts do better than others. And the ones that always do well is something that's either really big or really, you know, a snake that may have been a little bit strikey or grumpy on the time. Like, obviously, those ones do very well. But as we try and explain, even if I'm catching a six foot brown snake, which is trying to bite me in the face, you know, I still explain the only reason he's doing this is because I've grabbed him by the tail. You know, if, and I say that to people. They're like, oh, he was trying to bite you and blah, blah, blah when I, you know, when they're watching me catch him. And I'm like, well, what would you do if I 
grabbed you by the legs and flipped you off your feet and started dragging you around and try to put you in a bag, you're going to swing punches at my face. So, you know, you've just got to put yourself in the snake's shoes and obviously wear as gentle as possible and all that sort of stuff. But, doesn't you know, they think that they're about to get eaten um, when something grabs them. But I also try and demonstrate how calm they can be as well, you know, especially with the pythons and, and even I've had brown snakes which I pick up and they do nothing, you know, they're just like a slug. And they're um, super chilled out, and, and um, yeah, we always try and demonstrate how cool they are. Obviously, we try and demonstrate on occasion how dangerous they can be. Um, I guess just whether that's uh, how fast they can strike, or if you get too close, what happens, or how fast they can move, which is always good for people to see when we chase them through backyards because they can just vanish in a blink of an eye. Um, but that just sort of shows that they just want to try and get away from you. Um, but, um, yeah, no, the social media, oh, the power of, of social media is ridiculous. It's um, it's pretty crazy these days and uh, it seems like the world is nearly controlled by social media and, um, and it's, uh, you know, my business has benefited greatly from social media. But I think um, the people of the sunny coast and Australia and the world who learn from social media, especially when it comes to animals and that, it's, it's very positive for that as well, which is great. Yes, I mean, the, one of the things I noticed with the videos is I think you put a video up about a day ago for um, that Eastern Brown. And, oh, and the, and the netting, yeah. Yeah, and already it's got a couple hundred thousand views. Just, like, smash it, like, just straight away. Like, in, and obviously, you know, I think it just intrigues people straight away once people want to see what's going on. Well, that's it, yeah. yeah. It's, as soon as people, see, you know, hear the word Eastern Brown or, you know, we don't catch any taipans here. Um, they are potentially here up north in Noosa, oh, like above Noosa, but, you know, we've never caught one on a snake call. But, you know, as soon as people hear these, you know, tiger snake or eastern brown or red belly, you know, it, it triggers, they just want to, whoa, what's going on here? Um, and, and you know, even like the brown snake, like I reckon five, six years ago, if I had to put that up, half the comments would have been like, oh, why don't you just chop its head off or mm. why don't you just leave it there to die? Whereas... I reckon there was only one or two of those comments this time and the rest of them are like, oh, such a beautiful snake. Look, he just wanted to get away or you did a great job or you rescued him. I'm so glad he's okay. Like, you know, I feel like uh, attitudes and that have swung around a lot, which is good. Um, and that in turn, you know, helps the snakes and, and, you know, it sort of tells us that we're doing doing our job correctly, I guess. Do you find that the the thoughts or the, the perceptions of snakes have changed also with the people who actually call you up to use your services because no doubt there's this fear um, that's probably prompting them to call you. But do you find that the way that people treat, you know, even to, even to be motivated to call you guys instead of just attempting to go and, yeah, go and deal with the snake themselves, I guess probably speaks volumes. Oh, 100%. And I think, and that's evolved over the years, and this is one of my favourite parts of the job is the people I meet. You know, I I meet 120-kilo blokes who run and scream away when I'm trying <laughs> to catch snakes, and I have five-foot, you know, 40-kilogram ladies who are just right up in there being like, oh, check out this snake, that's awesome. You know, it's just such a range of emotions from men and women and, and kids, you know what I mean? We catch so many families and the kids are so intrigued and you know they're scared at the start or they might even be crying when i arrive and then you know they see me catch it and see that this this python is completely harmless and all i wanted to do was get away and they're like oh wow okay maybe i don't have to fear snakes maybe i can just sort of respect them but but yeah like the the phone calls have definitely changed people obviously respect our job a lot more and 
And I guess a lot of the phone calls back in the day were, were people terrified, like literally just terrified, um, just tell you, demanding us to get there within five minutes, even though, you know, it's near impossible sometimes. But um, but now, yeah, a lot of people, like so many people are ringing up and they're like, oh, you know, I don't, I don't mind having the snake here, but, you know, we've got a dog. I just don't want my dog to hurt it. I don't want it to go out on the road and get run over. Can you come and relocate it? I'm happy to pay. Can you come get it? And, and you know, if, if people don't have pets, we often – you know, just encourage people to leave it, especially if it's a harmless snake. Um, generally, if it's a, a brown snake in a quite a built-up area, we, we recommend relocation. But a lot of people just want them relocated um, just for the snake's safety. Um, but don't get me wrong, there's still people out there who literally cannot stand the sight of a snake and um, and call us out. Um, and, uh, yeah, so that's still definitely around. But I think, yeah, even the phone call and people's perceptions of snakes has, has changed. Where do you... Does it depend on the, the type of snake as opposed, um, which determines where you choose to relocate it? Is there particular um, places that are beneficial? Yeah, we've got pretty – well, yes and no. Like there's there's obviously like with your red bellies and your keelbacks and these species that generally are found around a, a water source. We try and relocate it near a water source, but we've got super strict rules on where we can actually take our snakes yeah, right. that we catch, um, which is frustrating and it's something I'm working on um, – at the moment, trying to um, loosen those rules a little bit just because, you know, with all the development going on and um, and that sort of thing, yeah, we're, we're, we're running out of spots to release them. Um, and I guess uh, one of the, the, the big things is, you know, conservation areas and stuff, which are huge. You know, we're, we're, we're just not meant to release them in there and, and, you know, we've got to obviously abide by those rules. But... You know, it's hard these days because there's so much development and, you know, tiny little bits of land that are left. And we obviously don't want to upset the community too and we don't want to release snakes too close to other houses. So it's it's a very, very tight, tight little battle that we um, that we run. Um, and, you know, I've got stuff all over my car. So if someone sees my car pulled up on the side of the road and I'm walking in the bush, they just instantly think the worst that I'm releasing a massive brown snake, but usually it's just a python. But, yeah, so it's an ongoing, uh, you know, you're sort of stuck between a rock and a hard place sometimes. But, um, yeah, we try and find a, a bushland that suits the animal and not too far away, you know, far enough away that it won't come back to that house. But we've got to also find an appropriate area for the snake. And, um, yeah, often all bushland areas are surrounded by houses these days. So, you know, we kind of don't have, have too many choices. Might be a silly question, but what's the what's the reason why you can't release in conservation areas? Is it because they're trying to monitor the area and they don't want anything Yeah, to so I guess uh, the explanation I've got over years is that um, because of the species or the reason why it's a conservation area, you know, they don't want that balance being disrupted. Right. Um, so... Um, I guess one of the examples I was told is like if there's an endangered frog species in that area, then they don't want a heap of frog-eating snakes being released in there. But, you know, as as it all naturally works, if there's frogs in an area, there's going to be snakes. It's mm. part of the food chain. So that's kind of where I'm having discussions at the moment um, just around, I guess, uh, opening up a few more areas to release snakes because, you know, we're just running out of – we don't want to put them all in the same spot either, you know what I mean? Like there's some there's some very busy suburbs. Like we're, we're extremely busy sometimes. Like even today in Budrum on a, on a pretty miserable day, I'm pretty sure I had five or six jobs in Budrum alone today. Wow. 
in one suburb. Now there wasn't it wasn't actually a very busy day. I don't know why there were so many snakes in Budrum, but um, you know, now I've got to try and find a spot to put these six snakes. You know, and I want to try and put them maybe in different spots um, because I don't want to just release snake six snakes in the one one habitat <laughs> yeah. because I don't want to put that habitat out of balance either. You know what I mean? So it's a very sort of fine line that we're um, that we're running. So, so what so what do you do when you're so when you're catching these snakes? You're bringing them back to back to HQ and and do you sort of hold on to them for until you've got the opportunity or you work out exactly where you're going to release them? What I mean, how many do you hold on to until you can? Um, no, step? generally it's catch and release as soon as possible. Like even on the way to the next job because you want you want to release them in the same suburb in the same similar area. Mm. Um, and just if I was to hold on to them and then have to drive back all to those areas, it you know it's be just so, so time consuming. So yeah, we generally just try and catch and release uh, basically straight away and it's good for the animal too to get it out of the bag and, and back in the bush and and um also you know the only time we'd ever hold on to it is if we we suspected it was injured or we we're just monitoring it um for some reason um although if they are injured we usually take them to the wildlife hospital so uh, but yeah generally it's just catch and release on the on the same day or even within like an hour What's the what's the most common call outs that you get? Is there is there sort of a, a number one that sort of you know <clears throat> tops the list? Yeah, so the most common species um, that we catch is definitely the carpet python. Um, so it's probably I was actually talking about doing up some um, some pie charts of you know the five or six years of snake catching that I've done just with all the species and how many and mm. what percentage. Which um, I might do over the next couple of days if it's still rainy, but um, <clears throat> excuse me. But yeah, they're definitely the most common. Probably I'd say, at a guesstimate, um, like forty percent of our work. Right. Um, like today, I'm pretty sure it was nearly a hundred percent. Just because on these sort of rainy days, really, it's only pythons that we catch. Um, but yeah, across the whole board, on average, I reckon it'd be about yeah thirty to forty percent, and then. You know, a lot of the other ones are pretty similar. So your tree snakes, your, your keelbacks, which are your freshwater snakes, and then, you know, different times of year we get a lot of brown snakes and other times of year we don't. So at the moment we're not catching a great, great deal, many of um, brown snakes, but during September, October, we were probably getting five or six calls a day for brown oh, snakes. Wow. So, yeah, depending on the time of year, breeding season, whether it's warm, cold, whatever, it, um, yeah, it does vary. Well, that's actually something... Uh, I was going to ask you about because my sort of stereotypical thought about snakes and even having a business like yours, I just automatically thought that you would be busy during the warm months and the humid yep. months. And then when it's when it's cold, you'd be sitting around twiddling your thumbs, sort of wondering what you can do with your time. But I, I assume that there's probably always something happening that, you know, you've throughout the year, no matter what, it's just like the species changes or the, or the yeah, types of we- change. We definitely, yeah, there is a bit of variance in, I guess, what species we go to, but um, it definitely does slow down, though, for three months of the year during winter, um, like quite dramatically. So, but we still find ourselves probably doing <clears throat> maybe three or four jobs on average during during winter um, a day. So, uh, and some days you might get six or seven, and other days you get none. So, kind of, it can vary, but I guess that's the time of year where snake catchers either go on holidays or, um, you know, catching up on paperwork or, you know, putting together old videos and, and that sort of There's always seems to be something to do with the business. Um, 
but yeah, I guess yeah, it does definitely slow down for sort of uh, June, July. Oh yeah, June, July, August. Mm. Um, <clears throat> but um, yeah, it always you know it it does definitely slow down. But this time of year, you kind of you know at the end of the season, to be honest, you kind of look forward to that time because like. Oh, for nine or eight or nine months of the year, we is absolutely mental. Like it's, there are some days where the phone literally does not stop ringing 24-7, 24 hours for that day. Um, you know, we get phone calls after midnight quite regularly. I had one last night, I got woken at, well, I try and go to the gym and be active as much as possible. And I went, I try and go to the gym at sort of 4.35 o'clock every morning just to get the day going. Um, and last night, I did two snake calls myself, I think at 7 and 8 o'clock, and then I came home, went to bed about 9.30, got working at 10.30 and 11.30 for another two jobs, um, which I didn't go to those two. But you still get woken and, mm. you know, throws you around a bit. But, um, <clears throat> yeah, we get so many calls after hours, especially when it's warm now and humid. Do you, have you seen or noticed any changes in the behavior of, of certain species over the years. Like, I don't know whether, like even where I am in Sydney now, I mean, the last week or so, probably the last couple of weeks, we've just got this really miserable, drizzly rain and just very cold weather. And it's just, it's unusual for this time of year. Have you seen that there's just been sort of unseasonal sort of behavior from, from different species over the past few years? Um, not necessarily. Like it can be relatively easy to predict. Um, like, you know, I've got sort of stats now for three or four years and they're quite good stats so I can sort of tell when it sort of picks up and, and slows off and, you know, you see the rain coming, you see the breeding season start and then there's a few little factors like when it first starts getting up over sort of 23, 24 degrees in, you know, August, September, the snakes start kicking off and, but, yeah, like big downpours of rain can slow snakes a little bit. But then, you know, we got 300 mil probably two and a half, three weeks ago up here. And it was pretty quiet, obviously, those few days. But since then, it's been ballistic. So a bit of rain, all the frogs come out, all the rodents are on the move, and then snakes are on the move. So, you know, there are little little signs. and But it's weird. Sometimes, you know, it can be 30 degrees out, sun shining, and you get like two phone calls you know, for the morning and you're like, what the heck's going on? And then the clouds roll in, gets a bit humid and you get another 15 for the afternoon. So it's like, you know, different little temperatures and, you know, sometimes it's easy to read. Other times you're just like, well, one, why isn't the phone ringing? And then other times it's like, why the hell is the phone ringing so much? Like it just doesn't make sense. Um, so you're like, oh, I've had busy days on days where it's pouring rain. It just so happens that all those snakes decide to come in and shelter, you know, in houses or underneath the porches of houses and people see them, so they want us to come out. But, yeah, it's um, definitely varied, that's for sure. What's the most unusual place you've found a snake? That is a very, very open-ended question, and I could probably <laughs> spend about three hours, but... <laughs> I should have started with that. <laughs> I know, and we'd still be talking, trust me. Um, no, I, I think... There's a couple of stories that I, I always tell, but basically in, in short, you could walk around your house and basically anywhere you look or in any household item, under any household item, in any cupboard around your house, I've caught a snake in it. Wow. Um, so I've caught them, just for instance, like I've caught them, you know, obviously under fridges, on top of fridges, under ovens, 
um, under beds, on beds, um, in washing machines, in dryers, um, obviously just on the move in a house in general. Um, you know, in closets for some reason is quite popular. Like they go into a bedroom and then the, the best place to hide is in, in the closet with all the crap. <laughs> so we find ourselves pulling apart people's closets. Um, but no, I think one um, which is quite amazing that I always sort of retell the story is I went to this house late at night and it was a bit of a hoarder's house and wasn't very well maintained and sort of rubbish and crap everywhere and, and – and the occupants, um, yeah, it seemed like they maybe had a few few drinks that night. And uh, and I walked in, they're like, yeah, the massive carpet python on the move in our kitchen. They're like, yeah, it went under that oven. And I was like, okay, this should be an easy job. It was just one of those freestanding ovens, those old school ones. So I pulled the oven out and there was no snake. And I was like, oh, there must be a hole, you know, because sometimes in these old kitchens there's holes at the back where the wires run in, in underneath the kitchen cupboards and yeah. the snakes get in there and then you just literally can't get them unless you rip apart the kitchen. Um, but, but yeah, so I couldn't find them. Like, there's no holes either. Like, are you guys watching it the whole time? They're like, yeah, we literally have not moved. And I'm like, far out. So I started pulling apart the oven. So I'm taking off like, I thought, oh, maybe it's up behind the notches and the, and the nozzles and I took that off. There's a big space there, no snake. Took apart the back, looked in all the back, no snake. And I'm like, like what is going? This is like 11.30 at night too, so I'm starting to get angry. <laughs> I'm like, right, I'll just take the side off and I'll just check the sides where there's basically an inch of insulation um, around the side of the oven, I guess, just so the outside doesn't get too hot. And I pull it off, and I kid you not, there was an eight-foot carpet python wow. that had curled itself up in a perfect spiral in this inch gap, like flattened its body out proper, a huge python. And I was like, wow. And from basically that day on, I'm like, if I search a room and I, you know, thoroughly and I can't find the snake, I'm like, I still got to search this two more times because I've seen where they can hide and I've seen, like I've caught tiny little snakes h- hiding in like, a binded folder on like the top shelf of a closet that is completely full. And it was like the last thing I looked and literally had to open the folder and wedge between the paper was a snake. <laughs> like that's like, that's how insane the spots are that they, they, yeah, that they can hide. I'm just looking, as you're saying that I'm looking around my room and I've got so much shit in here. I've got piles of books and boxes yeah. and, and, oh, <laughs> and I'm just looking going, okay, a snake could be there, could be there, could be there, could be there. It's, um, and I guess, I, I mean, they're always great stories to hear because, you know, it's, I think, yes, there's this sort of default fear that we all have of, of snakes, but, um, but I guess, do you, do you always hesitate a little bit when you talk about these sort of things with people because you're worried that it might sort of fuel the narrative of that fear? Yeah, and that's the thing, like, and people, you know, and and that's the thing in the back of my mind with the social media stuff because, you know, I'm not going to put a post on the wall of me just walking in and picking up a curled-up python, you know, that's sitting on the grass, you know, very, very boring. Mm. Um, And that's, you know, majority of our calls aren't that exciting. You know what I mean? Like social media just sees the exciting ones. Mm. But I think people, when they see that, they think that's all that we get is those crazy, exciting, ridiculous places. Like when a few weeks ago or maybe it was a couple of months ago now where I walked into a, a kid's bedroom and there was a toy basket 
and there was a four and a half foot red belly inside the toy oh, basket. Oh God! <laughs> like Jeez. that's only ever happened like a couple of times in six years. But people see that and they're like, "Oh my God, hmm. there's going to be a red belly in my toy basket." So I guess that's the downside to the social media stuff, is that you know we only put the good stuff up. You know what I mean? We only because there's no point putting the other stuff up. Yeah. Like it just doesn't get any reaction. And I guess from a business point of view, I need people to talk about it and and react and comment and that sort of stuff for business to grow and people to be educated. If I just put boring videos up, people will never watch them. So, um, yeah, I guess that is a downside, the fact that people just think that this always happens, like there's always red bellies in toy baskets or there's always eastern brown snakes in a bedroom, you know, but it's not the case. Like a lot of the time it's just we're walking in and and catching a, a, a python that's just in a tree in the backyard or curled up underneath a pot plant you know it's not very exciting stuff but yeah i guess that's probably one of the downsides i guess of um of the, the social media posts yeah, it's a tough one i mean i'm i think if i was in your shoes i'd be doing exactly the same thing i mean it's 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 smart business and i think in the end you want people to be aware of what you're doing and it, it, it it's a it's a reasonable approach to take and i guess I mean, the only thing you can do, which I think you're you're really sort of investing a lot of time in doing anyway, is is bringing that awareness piece around what they are, what what they're all about, what their purpose is, and and some of their behaviours as well. And as you said before, they're not they're they're not aggressive in the sense that they're seeking out people to try and inflict harm. It's you know, in in most cases, they're absolutely terrified, and they just want their space and to be able to find somewhere you know quiet and dark to hide. Um, and I think. Yeah, you know, that's all you can do is keep telling those those storylines attached with the with the videos along the way. Well, that's it. Yeah, and I think um, you know that's where the where social media over the last year or two have implemented those stories, which you can put up, um, you know, an Instagram story or a Facebook story, which lasts for twenty four hours and disappears. Um, and that's where we put up a lot of our boring, you know, what we think is boring, but a lot of people still love it. Um, stories of us just picking up pythons or tree snakes or. Well, that sort of thing. So, yeah, that sort of gives people perception. And every now and then we'll just put up a video, uh, I think like today, where I caught a nice big python that was hanging out near a bird feeder. It's probably, you know, not the most exciting call or the most exciting video, but people still respond and that's just another part of the job is, you know, you get your six-foot brown snakes and the hectic ones where the, the heart's racing and the adrenaline's pumping, but then you also get the the pretty calm ones. And it's always good to show that side of snakes as well, not just like these terrified snakes trying to slither away from us, but showing, you know, us gently pick up a python and seeing it just slither all over us and not be bothered, you know. It's put, it sheds snakes in a positive light. I think even, even the... The most boring of videos that you guys think you're putting out there would probably be incredibly wild for for a lot of people out there that yeah might, absolutely might not have ever seen a snake in real life themselves. So I think it I think that, it's all good. It's a good balance to have. And that's it. Like I went out with some media recently, a couple of the big networks, and they came out on a couple of calls and videoed it and for a, for a news story. And we only caught a couple of pythons, and I sort of got to the end of it, and I actually felt. It'll be bad. I'm like, oh, is that okay, guys? Like, do you want to come back tomorrow? And they're like, oh my goodness, that was the best day ever. Like, those <laughs> calls were amazing. I'm like, okay, if you're happy with them, like, oh, they're pretty boring to me. But yeah, like you said, I think to people who don't work with snakes, it's um, can be quite exciting and quite yeah, crazy to watch. Yeah, absolutely. Have you have you had any near misses or any uh, any bites yourself over the years? 
Um, you know, I've never been bitten, touch wood, uh, um, yeah, touch wood for you by, by like a, um, a highly venomous snake. Um, I've been bitten by mildly venomous snakes a couple of times, but, you know, just a little bit of pain and that was it. But, yeah, so I, I certainly have had some, um, some near misses. I guess there's probably three, um, three notable ones. Um, one was when I caught – there was two eastern brown snakes hanging under a deck around a pool at someone's house in Twin Waters, and I went over and um, got the first one, and, and when I grabbed it, I grabbed it right next to the pool, but I left my snake bag, you know, way back. And I was sort of – back then, this is four or five years ago – a little bit on the cowboy side still, you know, making my way in the industry and, you know, just trying to, oh, yeah, kind of like I definitely do things differently um, after that day. But, yeah, as I was sort of walking the snake back, I made a few mistakes. I didn't keep its head on the ground. I sort of kind of dawdled back and didn't really take it, I guess, as serious as I should have. And then I swung the bag around once I got back to my bag and <clears throat> and as I swung it around, obviously the snake reacted and comes straight back up on itself and um, literally went past my fingers within like millimetres of my fingers. And if it had made contact, it would have bit me for sure. And But in saying that, that actually happened again this year where I thought I was in complete control where so similar situation, I had to back back and get to an area where I could safely bagged the snake up and this time you know with with all the experience i've gained since that moment four or five years ago kept the snake's head on the ground everything was fine and um literally the snake went from having its head on the ground to pass my wrist and nearly like curled we've got a vision of it which is pretty crazy and i curled basically around my wrist and i ended up dropping the snake and running after it and catching it again but you know it can happen doesn't matter if you've been doing it you know, for three months, we've been doing it for 20 years. Like, you've got to be 100% on your game. And, and I guess another one was when I nearly got bitten in the face by a red belly oh, when geez. I um, pulled this huge red belly out of a rat trap. And, you know, it was 35 degrees out, and this red belly's hot and it's fired up because it's been stuck in a rat trap. And as soon as I pulled it out and I went to bag it up, yeah, it just sort of shot up on itself and just flung itself. I don't think it was actually trying to bite me in the face, but, yeah, when you slow the footage down, it got within about two inches of my nose. So, <laughs> um, yeah, so that's um, – I mean, I had a – yeah, that, that was those were probably the three notable ones that I can remember. I, I, um, I assume it's similar to what you said earlier about crocs where you have to have an element of – wariness and and a little bit of not nervousness but you just have to be sort of understanding that uh, there is an unpredictability of of the situation where you need to be on your on your toes you can't be too complacent otherwise you're going to be in, in one of these situations yeah well that's it you got to be ready to go and, and basically prepare for the worst if something was to um yeah go wrong or or that snake was to react differently or just put all its effort into trying to bite you back on the fingers, you know, where you're holding on the tail. So you just have to sort of be ready for it. And if you, yeah, that small lapse in concentration can, um, yeah, it could involve you being bitten. Jeez. Oh, all right. Well, um, before we wrap it up, I guess the, the, the responsible thing for me to ask you is that uh, if anybody out there does come across a snake at home or, or on their travels, what are, I mean, obviously, you know, don't get near it, but um, are there any sort of, uh, first steps that people should be considering uh, as far oh. as being able to manage or you know deal with a snake? 
Yeah, so obviously if there's ever a bite, you know, it's it's keep the patient calm, no moving, sitting down, um, correct first aid bandage applied and then call the ambulance. Don't um, suck the venom out? No, <laughs> definitely don't do that or don't pee on the patient, um, <laughs> anything like that. But, um, yeah, so – and that's so important, hey, like that pressure bandage could literally be, be the difference between life and death if, mm. if you don't do it correctly. So it's always good for people to – refresh that and have one with them whenever they're walking around or camping or uh, that sort of thing. There's, or you should always have probably one in each car at home and then maybe a couple in the kitchen or something ready to go just in case. But, um, yeah, at home, like obviously the snake in the backyard, you know, remove the danger. So basically get all kids, pets and everybody else away from the snake and get them inside. And if you want to relocate it, obviously call a snake catcher. Um, if it's inside, you know, definitely call a snake catcher, same thing, get everybody away from it, all the pets, and try and isolate it, I guess, in a bedroom or something if it does go in there by shutting the door and, you know, putting a towel under the door. Um, but, yeah, I guess it's just about common sense, like take a couple of seconds to assess the situation. A lot of people just panic and, um, you know, I, I, there's just no need to panic. Uh, I, I understand that it's a snake and a lot of people are scared of them, but... You sort of just take time to assess the situation. You'll notice that the snake's only trying to get away. So, yeah, just if you want to relocate it, the best thing to do is just, yeah, call a snake catcher and never, ever try and catch it yourself. And it's obviously illegal to harm them as well. Mm. And I assume that, you know, there are instances and probably most instances where it's unavoidable. I mean, it's just it is what it is, the situation that's occurred. But are there certain scenarios that you see where people could have, had a uh, like like you mentioned the hoarder earlier uh and yep. there's certain environments that you see people's houses that are probably just absolute magnets for for snakes and they shouldn't oh be. absolutely so people's houses which have just never been pruned in their life and you know tin and, and bricks and timber everywhere that are just making little homes for rodents and snakes coming in and people with you know chicken coops that aren't completely snake proof like that's a big thing we, we we get so much work from people who have chicken coops bird ovaries guinea pig enclosures where the snakes get in and, and eat one of them and then can't get out and they've just got a snake locked in the enclosure so i guess if you're going to have and keep these animals then you need to make sure that one the enclosures are snake proof and two you keep them as clean as possible because they're you know snakes will come in not only for the pets but also the rodents that come because of either the bird seed or the chicken feed or, or whatever. So I guess, yeah, cleaning up a yard's a big start. Like I get, there's no way of 100% keeping snakes away. Like there's no deterrence or anything like that. But, yeah, keeping a nice clean yard and, and keeping on top of rodent control. I mean, saying that, you know, a python around your yard is pretty, is pretty much free rodent control or a python in your roof will take care of all of that. So... Yeah, I guess that's a few little tips there and um, I guess just being smart if you ever do come across a snake and don't do anything stupid. That's probably the big thing, don't do anything stupid. <laughs> yeah, common sense literally goes a long way. And like people, oh, you'd be you'd be surprised at the, some of the messages and phone calls we get. Like people will send us a text message of them holding a snake oh. being like, what is this snake? And oh. the first response is, why are you holding it if you don't know what it is? <laughs> You know what I mean? Oh, like just stuff like that. We've had pictures of people holding Eastern Browns, baby Eastern Brown snakes, oh, and it's like God. a miracle that they weren't bitten. Um, oh. So, yeah. <laughs> oh, jeez. Uh, actually, one quick thing, um, and I'll keep you on the time, but um, I was watching a video the other day, and are they whippets? Is that the is that – Oh, the, the whip snakes? Whip snakes, yeah. I, now, 
I mean, obviously, there's we've got all these notorious snakes, these like you know taipans and browns and 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 the likes and red bellies, but those snakes scare the shit out of me because they just they're so quick. They just they seem to be uncontrollable. Like I mean, I think there's one where you were grabbing it out of a. I might have been out of a bathroom or something like that. It was a, a mother with a couple of kids or something like that, and you're and you're grabbing it out. And it was just moving so quickly. Um, I mean, are they are they common? I mean, I, I assume they're probably more harmless uh, harmless snakes out of the out of a lot of them. But are they common snakes that you see out and about? Yeah, the whip snakes are. Um, you know, they're they're quite common in most areas, and and I'd say majority probably. Over fifty percent of the time, that someone rings in and says they've got a brown snake. It's it's usually a whip snake. Mm. Um, but yeah, so I guess it's one of those things where um, you know there's probably three or four species that come under that sort of brownie colour here on the coast, and it can be so hard to um, distinguish between them. But yeah, whip snakes, and they're super hard to catch too because they're literally so fast, mm. and they're often just and they're so scared of people. Like I've never seen a even a defensive whip snake, like they'll never stand their ground. As soon as they see you, they just bolt for cover and then they're so small and so fast, it's so hard to find them in a garden bed, even if you've isolated it, you know what I mean? Like I've pulled garden beds apart and still not found them. Um, so, yeah, they can be super hard to catch, but quite common um, to catch as well. I actually caught one. Yeah, we caught one today, but I caught one yesterday as well in someone's shower. So they're... <laughs> they're um, they're one of those snakes that's uh, long and slender and skinny like a tree snake, and they, those two are the main two that get inside houses just because they can squeeze under doors and gaps. And, and that's another thing uh, which I should have touched on before is that do a, do a lap of your house and check the perimeter and make sure that your sliding doors don't have gaps. You don't have gaps under your front door or your back door, you know, around the roller door of the garage and maybe install fly screens if you want to keep the doors open just so because that's the main way snakes get in people open the door for five minutes let some breeze in and next thing you know there's a snake in the land room so <laughs> just uh, inviting themselves in yeah well, that's it um so yeah you kind of just got to be be careful and um and and yeah just make sure that you've done the best you can to to keep snakes away if that's the way you want to go All right, guys, you've got to follow Stu and Co. on the socials. Get onto Instagram and Facebook by searching Sunshine Coast Snake Catchers. Of course, if you're in the uh, Sunshine Coast region, I would definitely be jotting down Stu's details. But uh, go to Sunshine Coast Snake Catchers 24-7.com.au and uh, yeah, make sure those details are within reach because uh, you never know. But definitely go and check out the videos. Make sure you follow and like the pages. Um, support them no matter where you are in the world. It's uh, amazing stuff. And even if you don't need the service of getting a snake caught from your or collected from your home, um, I think just the piece of uh, awareness around these amazing reptiles is well worth following and supporting the uh, greater cause. So go and check all that out. Of course, everything will be in the show notes over at andysocial.net and andydowling.net. And whatever the hell you're listening to this through right now, there should be a bunch of clickable links as well. So click through, go and follow them on the socials, go and say hi to Stu and Co. Let them know you heard, heard them on the Andy Social Podcast, and I'm sure they'll be stoked to hear from you. Now, before we wrap it up, of course, Patreon, patreon.com slash andydowling. Just, I'm absolutely overwhelmed with the support. I'm, I'm so happy with the with everyone who's jumped on board over the past uh well, it's been less than a year that I've been up and running on Patreon, but already I've got a crew of people that have been backing me, supporting me, and it's been covering the costs of hosting, whether it be podcast hosting, website hosting, uh, podcast editing, production, uh, replenishing, updating gear, 
what else we got? All sorts of stuff. There's a whole bunch of costs that come into running a podcast and the Patreon support has helped cover this, take a bit of the weight off my shoulders and let me focus on having these great conversations, finding new people to have on the podcast and sharing these great stories and people with you all. Uh, so thank you so much. And of course, uh, Patreon are the reason why this episode is one of two of this week. And for this year will be two episodes per week. Uh, so I'm really up in the ante, getting more and more people out and into the anti-social archives. So go back and listen to the past what, 260, yeah, 260 episodes. Go back and have a listen to them. So for the month of January, usually I, I uh, do a little bit of a shout out for the top tier uh, legends on Patreon, but for January at least, I'm going to just do a, a quick shout out for everybody that's on Patreon. So here's my little Patreon list. So listen to that. So thank you very much to Ryan from Adelaide, Andrew from Perth, Mick G from Sydney, Ash from Daniloquin, Dan from Dapto, Riley from Sydney, the Toe guys from Melbourne, Lords of the Trident from Madison, Wisconsin, Sean from Oregon, the US, Johnny from South Australia, Zach from Adelaide, Rod from Rayleigh in North Carolina, Matt from Adelaide, Saul from Oxford in the UK, Patrick from Canberra, Liam from Brisbane, Tom from Melbourne, Chris from Sydney, Frank from Utengruppenbach, I don't even know if I ever pronounce that properly, but anyway, Utengruppenbach from Germany. Lewis from Ellie Beach, Turner from Armadale, Samantha from Sydney, Brendo from Leeton, Tim from Canberra, James from Brisbane, Bradley from Canberra, Sean from Melbourne, Kurt from Brisbane, Jason from Adelaide, Christian from Canberra, Cole from Port Campbell, and Jordan from Bendigo. Thank you so much, folks. And if you have joined uh, in the last uh, week or two, then uh, apologies if I haven't read your name out just yet. I am recording some of these a little bit in advance. But thank you so much, guys. You are the reason why Antisocial is still cranking in 2021 and why we're doing two episodes a week as well. So thank you very much. Jump on over to Patreon, patreon.com slash Dowling. It starts from a buck a month. I'm really keen to collect as many $1 supporters as possible. I think that'd be really cool. It's a nice, easy way to support the podcast. You won't even notice a buck coming out of your account each month. And it's just, uh, it's a really cool way to validate and support and just lift this podcast up to higher and higher levels of success. But there are additional tiers if you want access to the exclusive Patreon podcast as well that comes out every Tuesday morning at 6am. There's a bit of karaoke, a bit of a bit of story time, a bit of uh, general uh, just hoo-ha, dribble from your mate Andy, and it's just a bit of fun. So hopefully you guys that are already on Patreon are really enjoying those podcasts as well. So go and check it out, patreon.com slash Andy Dowling. Now, this uh, this week, uh, the second episode coming out on Wednesday morning is a musician. Uh, it is a return guest, somebody that hasn't been on the podcast for a very long time. And um, I'm really excited to share share this person with you. So I'm, I reckon uh, when you guys see this one announced, uh, for, especially for Australian music fans, you'll be really, really pumped to, to listen to this one. So looking forward to sharing that with you. I'm pretty sure, as I'm saying this right now, I'm having doubts as to whether that's actually the person I'm thinking of. I'm pretty sure it is. I'm pretty sure it is. Nonetheless, it'll be an amazing test no, no matter what. All right, time to cut it off, Andy. Thank you so much. Until next episode, take care and ta-ta. Larry. Larry, please.